our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Marcus Bridgestock once said, Political correctness is as exploitable as any other progressive ideal, but its aim is to stifle the incessant noise of those who flap their careless lips without a thought about those they might offend and why that might be important. That's a long quote to start this program. Good evening, folks. I'm Rick. This is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And I'm Jonathan, and that different perspective has its basis in three things. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue. Always done in a politically free zone. Folks, thanks for joining us this evening. It's a call-in format. We are caller-friendly, and we want to stress friendly, especially tonight when we get into this subject, because sometimes this particular subject is not that friendly. What's the question, Jonathan? Well, Rick, our question is, was Jesus politically correct? Why would you ask such a question? And our theme text is found in John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. All right, so we're going to be talking about political correctness tonight. And Jonathan, one of the things I think about when I think about political correctness is George Orwell's book, uh, written in 1949. The book was 1984 was about the future. It was a scary and suggestive look at what could happen to society if we didn't protect our freedoms from totalitarianism. The idea that Big Brother is watching was a fearful one, for this fictional story gave the feeling that what we say and think are monitored and forcefully used to keep us in line. So, fast forward. Here it is, 2017, and the year 1984 passed 33 years ago without... Big Brother watching. But wait a minute. The sexist and alarming thought of Big Brother watching would probably invade safe spaces and be recognized as a potential trigger for some. And we need to be gender and social status free in all of our policing of the masses. So, Jonathan, instead of saying Big Brother watching, we should change it. And to what, Rick? We should say, instead of Big Brother watching, we should say thought interpreting humans are guiding the collective. Oh, really? (laughs) Well, that's gender-free, that's trigger-free, and it gives you a simple, easy sense of things. The point is, we have entered a time in history where the policing of thoughts and words has overtaken us in a unique and disturbing way. What would Jesus do in this environment? Would he stand in support of it, or would he stand against it? Would Jesus be politically correct? That's a big question, and I think there's probably folks on both sides of that question. So uh, if you'd like to give us your thoughts, there's lots of ways to do that. You can call us at 866-985-4255, toll-free, 866-985-4ALL, or, Jonathan, other ways that uh, they can contact us. Well, they could leave a message at ChristianQuestions.com, and they can use their free app, 
and uh, message us. All right, so email using the app to send a message. If you are uh, listening in uh, through the Mixler uh, section, you can get in on the chat board there as well. So was Jesus politically correct? That's the question, and we're going to really work at what political correctness is, what it does in our day and age, and where Jesus would, would come in on these things. So first, let's get some origin. Let's get some background. Let's go back and figure out as best as we can, where did the phrase politically correct or political correctness come from? And, and Jonathan, as, as we go into this, we're going to read from a couple of different articles and so forth. But all of the, the, the historical writings on it, they might contradict each other a little bit. Okay. But, but we're still going to get a, a, a pretty clear sense of what it stood for. Because that's, to me, that's the big question. What did the phrase political correctness actually stand for. So our first source is going to be Wikipedia on political correctness. We're just going to read uh, from parts of a couple of paragraphs. In the early to mid-20th century, the phrase political correct was associated with the dogmatic application of Stalinist doctrine, debated between Communist Party members and American socialists. This usage referred to the Communist Party line, which provided correct positions on many political matters, according to the American educator Herbert Cole, writing about debates in New York in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Okay, so the first thing is it is it was used to reference Stalinist doctrine. And when you think about that, Stalin was... There, there's no way to, to, to describe Stalin as a nice person having done nice things historically. No. So the first connection we're seeing is with Stalinist communist perspective and position. And I don't know about you, but that's, that's disturbing to say, oh, so that's where it comes from. So let, let's, let's expand that just a little bit further. Let's go on with that, uh, that Wikipedia explanation a little bit more. The term politically correct was used despairingly to refer to someone whose loyalty to the communist party line overrode compassion and led to bad politics. It was used by socialists among communists and was meant to separate out socialists who believed in egalitarian moral ideas from dogmatic communists who would advocate and defend party positions regardless of their moral substance. And that comes from uh, – that's a quote from Uncommon Differences, The Lion and the Unicorn Journal. But in that, Jonathan, what it's saying is – so you had this debate between socialists and communists. Now, you, you think about it and you know, a socialist society is a society where everybody is supposed to be nice and equal. A, a communist society is a society where everybody is supposed to be nice and equal or I'll shoot you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, so so you have the harshness of the regime overriding the, the, the communist perspective. And socialists at the time in the 40s and the 50s used the phrase politically correct to, to point to communism and saying, you see, you're taking things too far. You're making people act without thinking. So it was used, uh, you know, to disparage that perspective. So it wasn't used in a positive sense at all by those who were socialist. And I think that's kind of an interesting place to start because those who would advocate socialism now use that phrase seemingly in a very positive light. 
You're right. It's the opposite. Right. right. So just a little bit of background, a little bit of history to sort of kind of set a, a, a basic, basic uh, guideline at this point. Let's take a minute, Jonathan, and let's go to a, uh, a soundbite from Steve Pinker. He's a Harvard professor, and um, this was from a, a, a video called Political Correctness is in a Decadent Phase. So, again, a Harvard professor talking about political correctness in today's world. Now, we just sampled the usage 60, 70 years ago, but let's, let's fast forward to today's world and just hear his perspective on it. Um, a lot of these are outgrowths of movements that originally were completely legitimate. Namely, like when I was a child, even a teenager, it was perfectly acceptable to tell ethnic jokes. You, you could hear them on the radio. You know, Polish jokes, for example. Um, where, and, and before my time, but I guess when I was a, a child, uh, African Americans were excluded from campuses. Uh, women were the butt of um, uh, sexual uh, insults and jokes when they did set foot on a, on a campus uh, like, like MIT. Um, and there was a legitimate movement to uh, remove these kinds of crude barriers to full participation of stigmatized groups. Gay people as well, where um, there were, uh, you know, those of us who are above the age of 50 can remember, you know, limp wrist jokes and, you know, lisping imitations of gay people and so on. Um, and so there was some increase in decency that made those kinds of uh, uh, demeaning um, remarks and discriminatory policies. So he's talking about something, and you go back to, to our youth, and Jonathan, I, you probably remember Italian jokes and Polish jokes and all of those things when you were a kid, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. They, they were very common. Everybody told them. You know, yes. what, you know what are the kinds of jokes they told? They told short well, jokes. Short jokes? Yes. And you look, didn't take that personally, did you? Well, here's the problem, Jonathan. I am part Polish, I'm part Italian, and I'm all short. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> so so in my youth you know you that hear, explains a <laughs> lot rick <laughs> but see here's the here's my point it, you know when i was young those were the kinds of jokes that just floated around and for me i got used to it and would tell the jokes because i thought they were funny and because it because it was me it's like okay a short joke hey you know how many short people does it take to do this or that and i could say that because i'm a short guy and i and you know you'll I learned to laugh at it, and it really didn't didn't bother me because I didn't see them as true. Now, obviously, many, 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 many people did, and I'm not saying that they should change their perspective. His point in this soundbite was an important one. He said that there was a movement to remove crude barriers to participation from certain groups, and that's appropriate. You don't want to have crude barriers to participation to women going to MIT or to, to um, certain races not being allowed to do this, that, or the other thing. You don't want those things. So it is important to take a stand and step up and look at and say something about and try to change the society when you have those, those wrong things. I agree with that. Now, I don't know if you call that political correctness or not. Back then, I don't know if they used the phrase or not. I don't remember hearing that phrase being floated when all of these things were, were coming into play. But well, what standing up standing up for righteousness is really in, in a lot of those cases a good good point. And just like many, many things, 
when you stand up for something and now you make progress, what do you stand up for next and next and next? And when does it get to a point where it goes over an edge? And I think, Rick Opinion coming in, I think where we are right now has gone so far over the edge of reality that we have we are now destroying the equality of humanity that many work so hard to try to put in place. That's just a Rick opinion. We'll see you know, how that plays out later on. Yes, for sure. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's go to another, another article because in this first segment, Jonathan, I really want to spend time saying what is political correctness? Where does it come from? Because if you understand where it comes from, what it's – uh, intention was what the the intention of the phrase was, and then you look at it today and you say, "Wait, wait, how come this doesn't doesn't match up?" So let's go to um, another source. This was from FactMyth.com. The article was the origin of politically correct, posted by Thomas uh, De Michel on August eighteenth, two thousand sixteen. And again, we're just going to read a couple of excerpts from this particular article. Political correctness in its perfect balance looks like civil rights and feminism, but in an extreme can look a lot like either fascism or Marxism. Likewise, a lack of correctness can look like the American circa the 1850s. The far-right politicians, who are usually the ones who speak about tolerance as intolerance, tend to ignore the fascist part as their goals are typically anti-left. They focus on being anti-Marxist. Likewise, the Marxists preach peace and love and focus on the fascists. Meanwhile, those who want to do nothing typically ignore the dangers, a more laissez-faire style. Okay, let, let's pause there for a second because you know, in the article it, it said a lot. It said, in its perfect form, political correctness looks like civil rights and feminism and so forth. And... Um, there's something to be said for that. However, with the feminist movement, what happens with the feminist movement is now you start to try to remove, remove masculinity. And I would absolutely challenge that as, as a, a productive part of the feminist movement. We're going to get into that a little bit later. But his point is, if you leave it in its perfect balance, it can do good things. I'll be willing to accept that as a basis. Okay, as a basis, sure. All I, right. Okay. And it says now, when it goes overboard, it can lead to fascism. Fascism is is dictatorial government where people are just crushed, or to Marxism. And we're going to talk about Marxism a lot more because a lot of political correctness flows through Marxist ideas. The point, Jonathan, is political correctness in whatever the best form you can put it in, at its best, is a very sensitive and easily manipulated idea. And that's what we're going okay. we're gonna, to we're gonna unfold. So let's get to this last paragraph, then we've got another soundbite. The reason we tend to focus on the socialism inside, dark side of uh, political correctness, is because it is well-intentioned and thus more difficult to see coming. Marxism doesn't mesh well with American values and often doesn't work very well in practice in large societies without mutating into a more authoritarian form of government. But its underlying intention is virtuous, while the argument against 
is often rooted in the vice of intolerance. So the, the writer is absolutely leaning toward Marxism. Okay, so let, let's go to a soundbite that also leans toward Marxism. The, the, the speaker in the soundbite is a very pro-Marxist individual, and we want to put some of that in here. I, I am not. I don't believe in Marxism at all. But, you know, you want to represent uh, another point of view. So this is political theory, uh, Karl Marx, uh, and this is from factmyth.com, the same place that we were um, uh, reading those excerpts from that article. Okay, let's go. Most people agree that we need to improve our economic system somehow, yet we're also often keen to dismiss the ideas of capitalism's most famous and ambitious critic, Karl Marx. This isn't very surprising. In practice, his political and economic ideas have been used to design disastrously planned economies and nasty dictatorships. Nevertheless, we shouldn't reject Marx too quickly. We ought to see him as a guide whose diagnosis of capitalism's ills helps us to navigate towards a more promising future. Capitalism is going to have to be reformed, and Marx's analyses are going to be part of any answer. So he's got that really nice, calm voice, but he's basically saying, we're going to get you capitalists, and you know, Marxism is going to be part of the answer. And, you know, and the interesting thing about Marxism, Jonathan, he goes on in the video, we're not going to play these, these segments, but he talks about Marxism and he gives five points. He says Marxism, first of all, uh, modern, in Marxism, one of the, the, the establishing points is modern work is alienating. You alienate people from what they're good at. Second, modern work is insecure. You don't even give anybody any security in the modern workplace. Three, workers get little, capitalists get rich. And they're saying, well, you know, the rich shouldn't have all that money and the workers should get paid more. Four, capitalism is unstable. He says, Marxist, uh, Marx, Karl Marx said, few people need to work. And because so few need to work, we should all have much more leisure. Five, capitalism is bad for capitalists. That's his argument. I really have a hard time following that one. And he says marriage is an extension of business who was a very anti-marriage individual. So Marxism touts this idea of, look, everybody can have fun and excitement in their lives and work, well, don't worry about it so much, but we all have to be willing to give so others can take so everything is equal. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Tonight's episode is, Was Jesus Politically Correct? Coming up, Was Jesus Politically Correct About Children? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Tonight's episode is, Was Jesus Politically Correct? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL. Or you could message us on your app. We want to hear what you have to say about tonight's topic. Post your comments on our Facebook page and our blog. Go to ChristianQuestions.com. So, Jonathan, at the end of the last segment, you asked the question, was Jesus politically correct about children? That's a great place to start and because there's so many viewpoints now of how to raise children. Now, look, we could spend the rest of the program talking about all of this, but we want to narrow it down to just this particular segment. So here's, here's the bottom line to get us started. Jesus did not say too much about raising children. 
Though he no, did, he didn't. So, so, but he did comment on some of the great inherent values that children bring to us. So we're going to take a look at some scriptural principles in raising children, and then that inherent value of children through the eyes and words of Jesus, and then compare it to some of the things we have today and just say, okay, was Jesus politically correct in his perspective? So Jonathan, let's start with an Old Testament scripture on raising children, Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is such a simple statement. But if you take the simplicity of that statement and you put it to work, what what it's saying is give your child clear-cut guidance. And if you give it to him in a clear-cut and firm and focused way, he's not going to depart from it. And this principle is sadly, sadly lacking in, I would say, most parenting today uh, that that I have seen. We don't... Go ahead, I'm sorry. And this goes along with um, the Old Testament times and New Testament times, the Gospel times. Right. You you know, the the Israelites would teach experiences uh, that their forefathers had, Abraham and Moses, and, and keep God alive in these young minds of all he has done. And we in the Christian age of Jesus' sacrifice and looking at the Old Testament prophecies and then and seeing what proper behavior is, we want our children to grow up to be responsible, giving to society in a positive, wonderful way. Yeah, and, you know, those are such good points because, especially in the Old Testament, Israel was instructed, this is what you will say to your children. And it was exactly what you just said. Repeat the history. Tell them. Show them. Remind them. So they have something to base their lives on. New Testament, same thing. And what that does is it produces a child that has confidence because they understand their past. They know what's expected from in the present. And they can now forge ahead into the future. But in the world today, we're not doing that. What we're doing is we're saying, oh, how do you feel? However you feel really is how I should feel about how you feel, so it's okay. Don't worry. We'll protect your feelings. That's not what the scriptures say. So to, to make that particular point, um, let's go to a soundbite. This is a, was a news uh, item, August 2016, KOB uh, TV4 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This was from a grammar school. Okay, Now, this, this was actually a news item uh, on television. Our top story tonight, teachers at Carlos Ray Elementary School are in a tough situation. They were told by their assistant principal to stop calling their students boys and girls. It seems school administrators decided to take the new transgender bathroom policy for APS a step further. And this is the first example we are seeing of something that started as a bathroom issue, now expanding into daily life in the classroom. So we took the new policy to people on both sides of the issue tonight. Here's the letter sent to teachers at Carlos Ray Elementary this month. It's titled Gender Identity Procedural Directive. It basically says starting this month, teachers can no longer refer to their students as boys and girls, telling them to eliminate gender in their classrooms. As you can imagine, it incites a passionate reaction from both sides. And a passionate reaction from us as well. (laughs) 
Wow. Now, now there was further reporting afterwards saying that uh, they, they didn't actually necessarily w- were able to carry this all the way through. But the point is, it was suggested and it was declared, do not call children boys and girls anymore. And when you think about that, that is going against just the very basics of humanity. And look, I'm sorry if it steps on some people's toes, but I, I don't know. I what do you think you're doing by giving a child a suggestion of choice of quote gender identification you're not teaching them you're allowing a five or six or a seven year old to create a destiny when they can't even spell the word destiny I mean what do we think we're doing this grows from grammar school, Jonathan, and goes on up into the, the, the college ranks. And there are serious, serious problems uh, at the college level right now. This is an article from The Sun uh, in, in the United Kingdom, uh, uh, June of 2016 by Jasper, Jasper Hamill. And again, we're just going to read excerpts only from this particular article. What, the, and the title, I'll, I'll give you the title, Jonathan, you take it from there. Trigger Warning. Meet Generation Snowflake, the hysterical young women who can't cope with being offended. All right, go ahead. Claire Fox, head of a think tank called the Institute of Ideas, has penned a coruscating critique of Generation Snowflake, the name given to a growing group of youngsters who believe it's their right to be protected from anything they might find Unpalatable. Okay, so that's the, the, the name coined for those, and they believe it's their right to not have to face things that they don't like. And that's pretty hard to believe for somebody who's college age. But anyway, let's continue. She said, British and American universities are dominated by cobbles of young women who are dead set on banning anything they find remotely offensive. It makes me sad that these teens and 20-somethings have become so fearful that they believe a dissenting opinion can pose such a serious threat, Fox wrote in an article for Mail Online. This hypersensitivity has prompted the University of East Angolia to outlaw sombreros in a Mexican restaurant and cause the National Union of Students to ban clapping as it might trigger trauma, asking youngsters to use jazz hands instead. Okay. Jazz hands? <laughs> R- really? So, so what, what are jazz hands? <laughs> okay, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> okay. The, the idea of clapping, what clapping does is clapping promotes one individual over another individual, and it's a, it's a noise that promotes. And what they're saying is that could be triggering to somebody to making them feel they were never clapped for. So we don't want to clap for anybody at the exclusion of others. So using jazz hands, how do you, how do you describe jazz hands, Jonathan? I, just moving hands yeah, back and pull, forth. Holding them up and kind of like waving them really fast. Yeah, like, really fast, yeah. yeah. So, so that is not considered offensive, I guess, because it's not making noise. I, and you think, well, wait, what happened? What happened here? Now – we're not going to go down this road for the entire program, but we're going to stop on this road for a little while because it's a problem. It's a big problem. Now, when you think about Jesus and you think about children, 
what would Jesus say to such things? You, you got to ask the question. Now, because he didn't comment, thou shalt not use cla- uh, jazz hands instead of clapping. He didn't say that, okay? <laughs> he didn't, there, there was no commentary on this directly from Jesus. But all we have are principles of how he saw children. So with that previous soundbite and this article in mind, the previous soundbite, oh, can't call boys and girls boys and girls, all right? Let's go to some of the principles that Jesus showed us in the value, the intrinsic, beautiful value of children. Children. Let's go to Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is here telling us to be teachable, trusting, humble, and willing and wanting to grow up because that's what is represented by a child. And, and again, Jonathan, you have to go to the model of a child from those days. You cannot use the model of a child from today, and the reason is because they are brainwashed at an incredibly young age to be able to do and think what they want to without the, without the benefit of firm, clear guidance. Parents have become friends of children. They have not become uh, the, the, the mentors of their children. And in wanting to be friends, you miss something very important. And Jesus is describing that for adults. This is the way you should be looking toward the kingdom of heaven. We welcome all comments or questions, even if you disagree with us. Give us a call. We're live at 866-985-4ALL. That's 866-985-4255. So, Jonathan, the point here is that when you look at a child in those days, children at young ages had a lot of responsibility. They, they contributed to the family. They did the chores. They helped in the fields. They helped tend to the flocks. They did the thing. They helped to wash the clothing. They did all of those things as part of life. And they were taught, like you were explaining earlier, what their heritage was and the value of their heritage. That's the child. That's the picture of a child that Jesus is pointing us to. Let's continue. Matthew 18, uh, verse 4 and 5. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So he's using the picture of a child and says, if you, as an adult, can humble yourself as a child like I just described, you would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So not only should we be teachable and always growing up, but we must receive others doing the same. We have to change the way we look at things when we come into Christ and be that teachable child. And again, Jonathan, that's not the description of children today. What we say about children today is they should be able to make their own decisions. And Rick Opinion, that's flat out wrong, flat out wrong. And I, and I believe it's wrong because children are simply not mature enough, do not have life experience. Should a child at four years old know whether they're a boy or a girl, or should you tell them you're a boy? You know, this is, this is the way a boy acts so he can become a man. And I'm not talking about some, some, some harsh uh, representation of a man, but a real, what I believe a real true man is somebody who's got the ability to lead and to decide and to, and to support 
to me, that's a real man. Children need to be taught those things. They don't need to be told, hey, whatever you feel like. Rick, they they need guidance. And right now, parents are afraid of their yeah. Ch- yeah. children. Yeah, you're right. They're, the households are being run by whatever the kids want or how they feel. Right. It, it's it's sad. Well, it's a recipe for absolute disaster, and we are seeing it in, in that Snowflake article. Um, so let, let's get back to Matthew 18. Uh, we're in uh, verse uh, Matthew 18, 6 right now. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, that is certainly not politically correct language from Jesus. He's using a harsh example here. Uh, our spiritual life depends on our growing up. That's what he's saying. Jesus saw a depth of teachability and trusting in children that he wanted to see in the adults who would be his followers. He's saying you have to be that way. And folks, in the world today, in our society specifically, in Europe specifically, children aren't that way. We are supposed to be in the world. But we are not of the world. Decide to raise your children with those biblical, firm, clear, focused, historically based, biblically based principles. That, to me, is, is where we need to go with this. Uh, just a couple of lines now from that article. Again, the article about trigger warning, meet generation snowflake, about especially young women. There's a lot of young men involved, too, but young women in, in, in colleges that won't Uh, that take great, great steps to not be offended by anything they don't like. Books containing troublesome material are now slapped with trigger warnings, whilst universities and student unions are declared safe spaces where young people should not have to encounter anything they disagree with. So you take classic books, and when they have difficult things in them, you you have to put a warning on it. Like reading about something difficult is really going to make you fall into depression. Well, for some of these people it does because they're so incredibly sensitive, they don't know how to deal with it. And you know what? That's the parents' fault. I, you know, we're, we're, this, is, this is so sad. Jesus, when he talked about children, didn't have this in mind. Because you think about it. In Jesus' day, 18, 19, 20, 21, 20-year-old women, 22-year-old women, they were, they, were, they were beginning to, to be married. They were running households. They were having children. They were responsible contributors to the society. And the society they lived in wasn't peaceful. It wasn't easy, but they contributed. So was Jesus politically correct about children the way we have political correctness today? Absolutely not. Not even remotely close. Matthew, he, he saw the potential in each one of them. Right. And he saw the potential in them because they could be taught. Yes. They could be guided. Exactly, exactly. Matthew nineteen thirteen to 15. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. So Jesus always had time for children because they received his love freely and represented what he came to die for. And he used them, that teachability, that that desire to grow up as a great example. Let's go back to uh, Steve uh, Pinker, the Harvard professor. Professor, Political correctness uh, is in a uh, decadent phase, and uh, it it mentions children in this particular soundbite. The time after time you see... 
uh, what starts out as an understandable and defensible and desirable moral movement uh, just go completely overboard, having achieved its major goals. So another example, which doesn't involve political correctness, but involves uh, another kind of madness, is our treatment of children. So children, you know, you, those of us who've read Oliver Twist and, and uh, so on know how children used to be treated in the, in the 19th century. They were, you know, they, they were in, uh, in, put to work as coal miners and chimney sweeps and, and starved in orphanages and so on. Then there was the, a kind of a children's rights revolution where children were treated, in the words of uh, one economist, as um, economically worthless, emotionally priceless. And that's really a way a child should be, economically worthless, but emotionally uh, priceless. Jonathan, our, our time is kind of wrapped up for this segment. So as we wrap up this segment, folks, the idea of political correctness in Jesus and children, you look at what Jesus did, what Jesus said, and what he taught, and it's nothing near what we are putting upon our children today. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Tonight's episode is, Was Jesus Politically Correct? Coming up, moving on to marriage, how would Jesus fit into today's politically correct view of the matter? I'm afraid That's not. Next. I'm afraid not too well. <laughs> You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Tonight's episode is, Was Jesus Politically Correct? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. Or you can message us on your app. Christian Questions, a voice of reason in a world that's lost its way. Keep in touch at Christian Questions. Amen, brother. This world has lost its way. Uh, and we saw that with the, the last segment talking about children. Well, let's look at marriage now. And let's look at grown-up men and women. Well, sort of grown-up men and women anyway. Uh, and, and, and Jesus' viewpoint on marriage. Again, as with children, Jesus didn't say much about marriage. But when you look at what he did say, you realize that he really didn't even need to say any more. So we're going to go to one aspect of what Jesus spoke about when he was actually cornered with a very specific question from the Pharisees. And Jonathan, they had their own version of political correctness because political correctness likes to put people in boxes. Oh, you're of this perspective and you're of that perspective. Now I know how to deal with you. Jesus would have none of anybody's boxes. Uh, Matthew 19, uh, verses 3 to 9, we're going to break it up into pieces. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now you wonder, why did the Pharisees ask that question? And chances are, it was likely provoked by the Pharisees' own internal debate on the matter that had been going on for many, many decades amongst themselves. There were actually two basic schools of thought on uh, marriage and divorce within the Pharisaical community. Uh, that's actually historically doc documented. Political correctness wants to label us and put us on sides. Jesus doesn't play games, and he's not going to play this game as we will find out. But uh, let, let's go back to Steve uh, Stephen Picker, uh, Harvard professor again for political correctness, is in a decadent phase because he also 
Um, I, I think this is the, the soundbite where he mentions a little bit more, uh, I think it was a little bit more about children, because remember in the last one he said, you know, we, we, we're not doing justice to our children. So let's just uh, listen to his next comment here. But often movements kind of reach their, their, their decadent phase, where they, uh, one, having achieved the, low, the, the majority of their goals, having picked the low-hanging fruit, they don't um, go out of business but they need to find increasingly uh, uh, obscure grievances and causes to retain their, their moral franchise. And I suspect that's what happened to what we now call political correctness, many, uh, many aspects of which in their original moderate form were completely reasonable. So that was – I was thinking of a different soundbite. We'll get to that at the end of the segment. So he talks about – you, you get to a point where you have somewhat of a victory on something that might be good, but now you have to push the envelope further and push the envelope further and push the envelope further. To illustrate that, I'm Jonathan. I'm going to ask you to read parts of an article that I know you don't want to read. You're right. Um, we, folks, we had quite a discussion about this article before the program tonight. And because this is not only confusing, it's just corrupt. Again, that's my opinion. But if you take a look at this, I think uh, you, you uh, well, we'll just let you take a look. It's from The Sun. Uh, it's a world exclusive by Rachel Dale, uh, January 7th, 2017. So this is only, what, uh, a week ago, all right? And again, here is the, here's the title. I'm four months pregnant. British man, 20, will be the first to give birth thanks to sperm donor he found on Facebook. You read the title and you say, I don't understand that at all, nor should, right. nor should you. So we're going to read just a few excerpts from this. Folks, listen carefully. This is confusing, and in my, my, in my mind, it's maddening. Hayden Cross plans to have a baby before returning to complete the transition process, which will remove his breasts and ovaries. The former Astod worker born a girl 20 years ago, is legally male and has begun hormone treatment. But he put his transition on hold to have a baby with donor sperm. Hayden, who lives in Gloucester and is four months pregnant, said, I want the baby to have the best. I'll be the greatest dad. So let's absorb this. It's, in the article, we're calling Hayden a male. Legally, he's being called a male, but he is, in fact, female. Now, why do I make such an assertion? He's pregnant. He has a woman's body. That means he is biologically female. But we call him a male, and he needed a sperm donor so he could have this baby in the process of transitioning from, to be, to, from being a woman to being a man. So now, if you saw the picture of the guy, he's got a beard, a little bit of a beard, and he's four months pregnant. But he isn't a he, he's a she because he's, he, she, I don't even know how to, how to, how to, how to describe this, is pregnant. Has political correctness gone too far? Because we're supposed to look at that and say, oh, how beautiful. That's nice. We'll accept that. I don't think so. Where have we got, what have we done to have such utter confusion? Let's put that on hold for a moment. 
<laughs> I got to I got to take a breath. Let's go back to Jesus answer about marriage and divorce cuz we want to get Jesus weighing in on this uh, on this issue. And in his answer, he does address this type of situation. So his answer, Jonathan, from Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are now no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together... Let no man separate. All right. So Jesus addresses this issue in, in, in a backdoor fashion by saying he made them male and female. And he said that's the way God made it. So Jesus was politically incorrect in quoting such a scripture from Genesis. But this was Jesus' unequivocal answer. And it's interesting. They ask, well, you know, is it lawful for a man to get a divorce from his wife for any reason? Jesus doesn't answer the question. What he does say is, why are you asking me that? I, I'm paraphrasing this. He's saying the whole idea is to be joined together for life. You shouldn't be thinking about or wondering about how to get out of it. You should be thinking and wondering about how to stay in it. That's his point. What he's saying is marriage is a lifelong covenant. Why do you even ask me such a foolish question? So Jesus is as far from political correctness on the man-woman marriage thing as you could possibly get. Because in this politically correct world, if I don't feel like I want to stay in my marriage, I don't. Sad. Really sad. Very much against the principles that form societies that actually survived. I mean, you think about this, and, it, and, it, and it's, it's dramatic. Let's go back to the article, Jonathan. I know you don't want to, but let's go back to the article about Hayden, the woman who's trying to become a man through, through uh, medical treatments, who, now is, who is now four months pregnant. Hayden told the son on Sunday, I face the prospect of not becoming the man I'm supposed to be physically or a dad. So I don't feel like I had any choice. Okay, but wait, to wait, have... wait, 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 wait. So I don't feel like I had any choice? This whole <laughs> thing is about her choice. You're right. There's nothing getting in the way of her choice. Don't even begin to say, I don't feel like I have a choice when everything you're doing are your choices that everybody is expected to bow down quietly and say nothing about. It's all about your choice. And the choices are vile when it comes to human life. It's a mistreatment, uh, a misdirection of human life. I'm sorry, continue. So I don't feel like I had any choice but to have a baby now, then get back to transitioning. I want a kid now, then it's back to transitioning. In September, I got pregnant by a sperm donation. All right, so uh, he went onto some website and, and, and got this, this donation, and, and uh, she, I mean, he, he's a she. I mean, they call him a he, and I, and I keep wanting to, to, uh, to, to quote them. Um, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's confusing. And, and obviously you can tell it's maddening. It's maddening because we have corrupted the sacredness of the family. We've taken that beautiful unit that has a mother and a father and the children and that unit that protects itself together from, from the evils of the world. And we've taken and we've shattered it and said, look, you can make a family into anything you think you want. Whatever you feel is fine with us. This is, this is not. Jesus would not have stood for such things. 
Folks, if you have a thought, what's the number, Jonathan? It's 866-985-4255, or contact us and leave a question or leave a message at ChristianQuestions.com. Okay, so let's get back now to, to Jesus' answer to the Pharisees, because... Yay, a scripture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, bud, sorry. <laughs> because he's already said, you know, male and female, that's all good. But now the Pharisees obviously don't get the point. And so they, they hear his answer, but they're not listening to his answer. And so because they're thinking, we got to label this guy. we got to figure out what side of the issue he's on. So they go further with their questioning. Uh, verses they, 7 through 9. I'm sorry, go ahead. They said to him, why then did Moses to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And, and, All right, Jonathan, you're breaking, you're breaking up there. Uh, let, me fin- let me finish the scripture, Jonathan. It says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits whoever adultery. Divorce- okay, hang on. We, we lost you there for a minute, Jonathan. Um, so uh, what we have here is Jesus' answer. Uh, it looks like you're back, Jonathan, so that's good. Okay, good, good. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, Jesus' answer is, look, Divorce is only there because of the hardness of your hearts. That's the only reason God allowed it to be part of your life. That's the only reason that something is put in place like that, because you wouldn't live up to the sacredness of that original covenant. So he's saying, don't be asking me about this kind of stuff because it's not supposed to be there. And the point, Jonathan, is this is so politically incorrect. You make, here, here's, here's an idea. Here's a scriptural idea from the, the lips of Jesus. You make a promise, and you keep the promise. That, Amen. But that's, that goes against every politically correct idea in our world, because if I don't feel like it, I shouldn't have to. Further, you shouldn't be able to tell me to keep it. Who do you think you are? So this whole thing, just, it just does not make any sense. So, Jonathan, just this is the last time on this article. I'm just going to ask you to go back to, to reading it. Uh, just this last uh, few lines. Yet Hayden admits he now feels uncomfortable carrying a child and struggles with the physical changes. Aye, aye, aye. I was finally starting to become myself and became a man physically, but now my body is going to the opposite direction. It makes me angry that I've been put through this. No, wait, ho, 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 hold the phone, stop. Do you, want, you see what's happening in this? He is now making a statement that that it seems to be accusing others for his dilemma it makes me angry that i have to be that i've been put through this i'm carrying a child but it doesn't feel right who decided for you to carry the child oh i don't she know did. she did <laughs> that's right but she keeps calling herself a him and so she's confused and and now she's saying that, you know, I'm, I, I'm angry that I'm being put through this. You're not being put through anything you haven't decided. Political correctness takes away personal responsibility. That's what it's doing today in this age. Without personal responsibility, we have nothing. Jesus would look at situations like this and flat out say, look, you have to live up to the things you're supposed to live up to. Period. You know, it, it's such a completely different world. Um, let's go back to uh, another soundbite. So we're done with uh, that j- article. Go ahead. 
You're not going to finish that? Oh, oh no, I'm sorry. I interrupted you, didn't I? Yeah. Yes, you did. Yeah. Did I do that? You did. <laughs> okay. All right, here we go. Carrying a baby is meant to be a happy time, but in my body it feels wrong. I just couldn't face being years down the line and still waiting to transition so that I can have a kid. I wanted the kid now so that I can have the transition before I get old. Uh, now, keep in mind, she is only 20 years old. So you look at that and you say, wait, wait. What do you mean before you get old? I, there's so many things wrong with this, Jonathan, but what it does is it makes the point that political correctness is not in line with scriptural principle. It just isn't because it's about feelings, not about how life actually works. Now let's go back to Steve Pinker, Harford, Harvard professor uh, on political correctness in its decadent phase. This is the one about parenting that I got confused uh, from earlier. So that's our new understanding of child of children, as opposed to economic resources to be, you know, exploited, uh, and that led to a lot of great reforms: child labor laws, compulsory education, and child welfare agencies. Uh, it led to a reduction of corporal punishment of children, of uh, spanking. Uh, led to a, um, a, a greater attention to children's safety, like car seats, uh, and um, not exposing kids to secondhand smoke and you know playground uh, equipment that led to fractured skulls. But now we've gotten to the point, you know, as any any parent knows, in fact, as any grown-up child knows, where children out of their sight, where kids can't walk to school, where they can't play by themselves in the playground out of fear that they might fall or get insulted or get abducted by sex perverts, all of it in totally out of proportion to any assessment of the objective risks. But the hyper-parenting movement is an example of a progressive trend that just went too far. And that hyper-parenting movement, Jonathan, is what gave us the, these these situations where we protect our children to such a degree that we don't expose them to failure or to things that they don't like, but we just go along with how they feel. A child needs to be shown how to cope, not to just dwell on how you feel. That reminds me in, in sports um, examples with children, they give them all a trophy. Yeah, 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 you're right, you're right. <laughs> You know, and, and, and Jonathan, we're almost out of time for this segment, but um, okay. you know, we, we certainly are not to be anywhere near political correctness when it comes to raising children or when it comes to marriage. We're not gonna, we don't have time to read it, but Colossians three eighteen to 20, talk about wives being subject to their husbands and husbands uh, taking care of and doing the things that are necessary to support their wives. That's what our correctness is supposed to be. It's not being politically correct correct it's being spiritually and scripturally correct so that we can build families that can actually honor god in in our lives so we can be productive in society so we can contribute and we can we can make things better for our parts political correctness doesn't seem to be bringing us to that end in the second hour we've got so much more on the subject of jesus and political correctness so we'll be back soon but till then think about it Folks, remember, we love hearing from our listeners. Let us know what you think about today's topic. Suggest future topics. Start a conversation with us at ChristianQuestions.com. Make sure to download our app. Search Christian Questions in your app store. Ways to contact us. We'd love to hear from you. Our family of listeners is growing every week. 
Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Jacques Barzun once said, Political correctness does not legislate tolerance. It only organizes hatred. And boy, that's a loaded statement. Folks, welcome back. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And and Jonathan, our subject this evening is uh, pretty interesting. It really is, Rick. Our question is, was Jesus politically correct? Our theme text is found in John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So we are talking about political correctness uh, in the in the uh, in 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 the world and uh, in the effects that it's having here today. And when we look at this, we're, we're, we're trying to say, okay, here's what it is. Here's what Jesus thought. Here's what Jesus taught. And we're looking at there's a, a wide gap between those those two things. Um, so just you know, political correctness. Uh, in its applications today, we talked about families, you know, children and, and marriage, and Jesus is very, very different than the things that are being taught and looked at today. Um, very um, uh, difficult for us to, to see and understand, how did we get to where we are? I mean, when we look at this stuff, Jonathan, I mean, you and I are both sitting here shaking our heads saying, what? Are you That's sure? That's the question. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it's gone so far over the edge. Um it's it's hard to imagine how it can be repaired in this present evil world. So right, and so we need to um, put ourselves in a position of saying, let's back up and let's try to understand where it came from. And and you know the origin of political correctness, the phrase is 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 communism. That's where it came from, and it was it was meant to be disparaging at the at the beginning. And now look, we take it and we assume it and we say this is the way we should be. Uh, something is just desperately wrong with this. I want to go start with a soundbite here, Jonathan. Um, this is from Save the Snowflakes uh, from MRC TV. And this is sarcastic. I want to, want to make sure that this is understood from the beginning. This is a sarcastic look at what is being called the snowflake generation, those who believe they cannot be in a position where anything ever offends them. These are college-age students. In the sarcasm, though... Um, they're talking about raising money to save the snowflakes, okay? That's the sarcastic thing. But they're quoting facts and figures that are very, very important to understand. So try to see through the sarcasm and get the reality of what's being spoken of here. It happens all around you, and you may not even notice. Thousands of snowflakes have found themselves personally victimized by the recent election of Donald Trump as President of the United States. They continue to be emotionally damaged by the idea that the country may be run by someone that they didn't vote for. Campuses across America are doing everything they can do to help put an end to this devastating human crisis. Cornell recently hosted a cry-in where snowflakes could drink hot chocolate and come to terms with the unspeakable tragedy of not getting their way. The University of Pennsylvania offered puppies and kittens for snowflakes to 
University of Michigan Law School scheduled a post-election self-care workshop where snowflakes could color and blow bubbles. Other colleges and universities even canceled classes and final exams for snowflakes when the emotional damage was just too crippling. So, Jonathan, that's the beginning. We're going to come back to that, back to that later. But doesn't that give you a, a, a sense of great sorrow? It does. It, you feel sad for this generation. And, and again, this, it was done sarcastically, but it's quoting the facts. It's quoting the universities and what they're doing and how they're acting and, and how they're pr- promoting all of these things. And so when we look at this, and a lot of this has to do with the idea of Marxism. And we're going to get to that uh, in, in just a moment, though. Um, but at this point, um, we do have a phone call on the line. So let me just get that up and ready. And I believe we have Teresa on the line. Good evening, Teresa, and welcome to Christian Questions. Hi, Rick and Jonathan. And Teresa, where are you from? I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Okay, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to call in and say how much I appreciate tonight's topic. In a very politically charged environment right now, it's hard to be in the world and not of it. And I especially appreciate the logical and scriptural-based arguments you're presenting for some of these increasingly difficult situations that we're faced with every day. It's It's a challenge, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You sound like you're discouraged with it. <laughs> um, well, I, I work in a field where I think I'm exposed to it a little bit more. Okay, so you and, see And, yeah, it's hard to, um, you know, find the balance between not participating in the conversation and showing your disagreement that way versus speaking out and really standing for the truth. And and I imagine if you work in a field where you see a lot of this, um, you, you have to find a balance where uh, you're not being offensive and being supportive, but not being supportive to the point where you're supportive of things you don't believe in. Exactly. Well, uh, you know, I wish you God's blessing on that one, sister. I'll tell you, that's a tough one. Um, all right, Teresa, thanks so much for the call. Appreciate it. Very good comment uh, from one who knows. So thanks so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Take care. Jonathan, very good uh, very good call. Very uh, practical because apparently she works in a situation where this stuff is in front of her face. And that's a challenge. If you're a Christian as obviously she she is, you have to be you have to be sensitive and we're not suggesting you not be sensitive. But we are suggesting we can't support the ideas that are that are that are so utterly destructive. You have to work within the rules of the environment you're working in, and you know how do you do all that? It's that's very very difficult. So Teresa, thanks again. Uh, you you brought a very practical application to this whole conversation. Uh, so so Jonathan, we we started out the program talking a little bit about Marxism, and I want to just throw out the question here and now: Does anybody think that Jesus was a Marxist? Because Marxism seems to have this idea of painting a very utopian picture of the world. It revolves around equality and not having things. And these points do sound a lot like Jesus. I mean, Jesus was all about people being, you know, treating each other equally, right? Mm -hmm. He was all about not having a lot of stuff. 
Yeah. So would you say that Jesus, you know, could have walked down that Marxist path? Well, let's go to Jesus and social tolerance in this particular segment uh, tonight. Jesus taught and stood for very specific principles, and those principles were and are most often misunderstood. Good example of that is his interchange um, with uh, uh, this uh, in in Matthew 19, verses 16 to 22. This is his interchange with the rich young ruler. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may attain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, see, the man that approached Jesus was of Jewish descent. And for the Jew, following the commandments was the pathway to life. That's what was promised in the Old Testament. But that also would lead you to Jesus because he was the Messiah, the fulfillment fulfillment of the law. But he said, follow the commandments. That's what every Jew was supposed to do. So uh, this young man is, is... Deeply interested, like, okay, but, but give me more. So let's go a little further in the verses. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus lists out several very clear-cut commandments about treating other people with respect. And again, that, that fits in with what Teresa with her phone call just said about you know being respectful but standing for something. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Aha, you see, you can read that statement and say, Now that's very Marxist. You know, go divest yourself of all the things that you have gained, give to others, and come follow me. So you can say, see, Jesus is a Marxist. It's proof right there. Let's continue. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. So the the bottom line is the, the young man just wasn't capable, didn't, mentally capable of getting rid of his stuff. The point is, Jonathan, people can say, see, Jesus has Marxist tendencies. No, he doesn't. He has tendencies for treating people well and for realizing that when someone wants to truly follow him, they have to not be attached to the things they're leaving behind because that's what following Jesus means. Does it, does it mean that every rich person would have to divest themselves of everything? No. It means you just can't be attached to it if you're going to be a true follower of Jesus. That, that's a spiritual concept not a Marxist concept. Want to change gears for a moment here. Um, and we, we made reference to uh, the book 1984 right at the beginning of the program. In the book 1984 in any, or in any Marxist society, the, uh, the, 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 the guy in this last uh, um, uh, reading would have had to be re-educated. He would have had to be brought aside, hey, he's not willing to divest himself, let's re-educate him. In the book 1984, the re-education camp was actually a torture camp. And it was a place where they tortured your attachment out of you. So then when they brought you back to society, you were so beaten and broken, you weren't attached to anything. And they called that a victory. So this is not, this is not Jesus here, okay? This is plain and simple. We're going to go to a soundbite, Jonathan, but this needs a little bit of explanation. This is an ex-KGB agent explaining how political correctness can be used against 
uh, people who support things like Marxism. He left the KGB in the 19, in, in 1970 and defected to America. All right. In 1984, he did this particular interview, and what he's describing in this interview is how the how how Russia's government would actually plant those who would pr- promulgate Marxist ideas into into countries, let those ideas grow, and then swoop in and take over because you've got everybody sort of downsizing and becoming equal, and it made it easier to swoop in and, and be a, a firm leader. But in this soundbite, he talks about a phrase, and he uses the phrase useful idiots. He uses the word idiots a couple of times, and I want you to recognize that before the soundbite. And he, here's what he says happens to those individuals. It's the same pattern everywhere. The moment they serve their purpose, all the useful idiots are used, either be executed entirely, all the idealistically-minded Marxists, or uh, exiled or put in prisons, like in Cuba. Many, many former Marxists are in Cuba, I mean, in prison. So most of the Indians who were cooperating with the Soviets, especially without the uh, Department of, of uh, Information of the USSR Embassy, were listed for execution. Uh, and when I discovered that fact, of course I was sick. I was mentally and physically sick. And, and that's why he defected. He, he realized that what he was doing was, was, was participating in, 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 in these mass ex- executions of people who were trying to stand for what they thought was a great ideal. But it was, they were just political pawns, and they were called in the political arena useful idiots. You think about that and think, wait, wait what's happened here? How, how far off is that? But that's what happens when we have these kinds of ideas in this kind of world. Because the fact is, someone who is a Marxist, a true Marxist, is not strong enough to lead a bunch of people. And Why? To, Why is that? Because you're so focused on everybody being down and level and even that there's no leadership. Somebody has to step in with strength. And typically, when you have a void, the person or the people who step in are nasty and will wipe out anything that's in their way. Because now you've, you've paved the road for them. You've made it easy. So anyway, just a just a kind of a sideline. That's to me, that's shocking to see that actually happening in in history, in in modern history. This was in the in the 1970s. He was, that's he was brutal. About. That's it, just it, brutal. It is. It is. It's, it's it's crazy. Let's go back to Jesus now. You know, we keep going back and forth. We got to stay with the scriptures. Jesus' teachings rose well above the fray as he lived his own teaching of truly loving your enemies. And this is where all of this other stuff breaks down. Jesus actually did love his enemies and taught us to do the same. Matthew five forty three to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So Jesus is saying, you must love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Jesus lived that. He died for his enemies. So you don't get better than dying for your enemies in terms of loving your enemies. I mean, this is such an, a high level of, of contribution. We'd love to talk to you right now. We're live. Call us at 866-985-FOR-ALL. That's 866-985-4255, or leave us a comment at christianquestions.com. So we look at this, and we see Jesus living above all of that. 
Christianity is merciful, yet honest enough to speak the truth when it needs to be spoken. And, and again, going back to Teresa's phone call, she kind of mentioned that, like, okay, there's this difficulty where you have to be able to speak up. But you speak it, you, you try to use mercy and kindness wherever it's possible. Sometimes, as in this next text, uh, you know, you have to be a little bit blunt. And there's nothing wrong with that in the right, in the right place. Acts 3, 12 to 15. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life the one who God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. So Peter is blunt. He's talking to individuals. They've watched him heal somebody, and they're saying, how did this happen? He says, by the power of, of the Holy Spirit through Jesus, whom you were responsible for crucifying. You know, in a politically correct world, you don't want to say that because you're accusing somebody of something. But Peter knew it. Peter knew it. Peter was there, and he had the boldness to say to them, this is what you did. This is how it happened as a result of that. And when we look at that, we say, okay, what do you do? What does such bluntness bring you? This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Tonight's episode is, Was Jesus Politically Correct? Coming up, so what about politics? Did Jesus get involved? Was he politically correct? You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Tonight's episode is, Was Jesus Politically Correct? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-FOR-ALL. You can now message us on your smartphone app during the program, and we'll try to share your comment on air. All right, so Jonathan, in this segment, we're going we're gonna to finish the blunt statement that the Apostle Peter made in the last segment. But before we do that, there, there's two things. One, um, I was just talking to, to Trish during the break. And you know, one of the things that's important is to realize, look, Jesus wasn't trying to fix the society he was in. He was trying to show them a higher way to come and follow him. And it was the Jewish people he was talking to, so it was based on the law. We should not try to fix the society we're in, but we should be examples to calling others out to following a higher way, a spiritual way, so that God, through Jesus, can fix the world for real in the next age. So it's not about us trying to fix it. It's about us learning how to cope with it, stand up for what we think we should stand up for in a way that is Christ-like, but not fall for the traps of all of this stuff. And Rick, that reminds me of uh, last week's program, Be a Light in the World, Be the Salt of the Earth. Yep. Show by example, lead by example. 
Yeah, and we're going to be actually getting to a scripture with that in a few minutes, uh, maybe next se- segment. But anyway, um, uh, Jonathan, just want to touch on an- another article that I forgot to read last uh, last segment. This is from Money Watch, December twenty first, two thousand sixteen. The title is "Young Adults Living with Their Parents Hits a Seventy Five Year High." It says, "Pity both parents and American housing market. Millennials are moving back home with their folks, and they aren't moving out." Almost 40% of young adults live with their parents, step-parents, grandparents, and other relatives last year, or the highest point in 75 years, according to the data released from real estate analytics uh, company uh, Trulia. The only time in U.S. history when the share has been higher was in 1940, when the U.S. economy was regaining its footing from the Great Depression and years prior to the country's entry into World War II. And then it goes on to say that... Um, of 18 to 34-year-olds live at home with their parents, and this was in 2014, and only 31.6% of that same age group were out on their own. What's happened? We've we've lost our ability to say, I'm going to go make it work. We've just lost that somewhere, somehow. It's pretty sad. It is. With that in mind, let's get back to the Acts Scripture, because the Apostle Peter just told a whole bunch of people that they, as the Jewish nation, crucified Jesus. That's not a nice thing to say. It was a very politically incorrect thing to say. And that so it was a blunt truth that he had to tell them. Let's see what happened as a result of that blunt truth. Let's go to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day. It doesn't sound like a good good response, does it? It doesn't, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So they got put in jail, but people were converted by the thousands. Why? Because there was a miracle, but Peter was bold enough to tell them the truth. You have to be bold enough to speak the truth. Now, sometimes it's not appropriate to speak it in blunt terms like Peter did, but sometimes it is appropriate to speak it that way. Christianity then focuses us on honesty and accountability and also provides forgiveness for our wrongdoings. Christianity is focused on bringing one person at a time to see their own lives, not to try to change society. So in this world of political correctness gone haywire, we should not decide that, okay, as Christians, we're going to pool our resources and combat it and fight it. Rather, we need to stand the way Jesus stood. He didn't try to change the world then. He tried to show them a better way, and he took them one at a time as followers. That's our example. That's what we need to be doing. We're going to get to Jesus and politics uh, right now, Jonathan, but there was a, uh, a message from the uh, Mixler board. It says, Marxism failed because the leaders were greedy and could not apply noble principles for the benefit of the people. Jesus does not have that shortcoming. <laughs> you know, and, and that's why the very best principles of any any uh, uh, political perspective, the very best principles can work if they have benevolence at the top. And with Jesus as a benevolent leader, you can take the very best from this, 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 and this and say, now watch it work because he's above it. And, that's, and you know, imperfect humanity can't go there. So Jesus and politics, here we go. 
We're not a political program, so we're not spending a lot of time on this. <laughs> Jesus was far from political correctness when it came to politics, for his life objectives were far from any other man. Simple as that. Let's start with a really interesting quote from Stefan uh, Molyneux. Molyneux. Those who make conversations impossible make escalation inevitable. See, if we don't create an environment that we can talk to one another, the only thing that will happen as a result is the, the situation will escalate. Last week, remember, we did a program on compromise? Yes. What the apostles and elders did is they created a situation where two sides of a volatile, volatile issue could talk to one another and reason with one another, and they came out all stronger as a result. So that's a very important uh, process. But let's take a look at Jesus uh, and a little bit of uh, uh, politics, his dealing with politics. Let's go to Luke chapter 20, verses 19 to 26. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. Doesn't that sound like the thought police that we talked about from the book 1984? <laughs> it really does, Rick. They're looking to find a way to trap him. So they're looking to set the bait so they can say, aha, we got this guy because he's frankly an irritant. We need to get rid of him. So the, 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 the 1984 thought police were alive and well in Jesus' day, I guess. Uh, or, and you can say, look, any random present-day politically correct approach, when we have thought police that say, oh, no, no, you can't think that, you can't say that because there's offense, we have to be really careful about, about, about the, the results of that. But again, remember, our job is not to change it. Our job is to stand for something higher. So let, let's get to how they sought to trap Jesus. We're reading from Luke chapter 20. We're down now to verses, uh, let's see, 21 through 26. They questioned him saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people, and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. You know, they did not expect that answer from Jesus. It was completely out of the ordinary because they would have expected him to say, Look, he has no business taking your money. So, you know, you've got you've to stand up against that. But it was, it was a matter of Jesus saying, well, wait, let's take a look. So he's talking about the civil government right there. He's, he's, he's delving, because of the question, into the politics of the day and the laws and the rules of the day. Should I be paying these taxes to Caesar? And Jesus' response is, look, render to Caesar what's Caesar's. But most importantly... Render to God what belongs to him. And what belongs to him? Your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Okay, pay the taxes. But everything else, the good stuff, that goes to God. Thanks for listening to Christian Questions Live. Call us now at 866-985-4255 or ask your questions and leave your comments at ChristianQuestions.com.
You know, Jonathan, in this in this program today, we've 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 bl- brushed over lots of different things about you know fascism and and socialism and communism and all of these things. You know, forms of government. And look, we're not here to talk about forms of government, but what we are here to talk about is the is the danger of falling into the traps of the thinking. And I want to make a point. It's kind of a side point, but I think it's an important point. We're talking about taking good principles and drawing people in with good principles and then trapping them and then dominating them and then ruling over them with an iron hand. You know, Stalin was a great example of that in in the political world. The papal system was a great example of that as well. Draw people through Jesus and through Christianity. Draw the masses together and set rules and then create, yes, create the vision of hellfire so that you scare the people to death if they step outside of line. Now you can do with them whatever you want. It's the same kind of thing. It is a misuse of something good for the purpose of power. Not to be had by us. Not to be had by Christianity. We need to avoid such things at all costs. We are in this world, but we're not of it. Don't try to change the world. Stand above the fray, because that's what Jesus did. Jonathan, let's go to Mark 12, 28 uh, to 30, because again, it's the scribes uh, coming to Jesus and uh, trying again to, to trap him in, 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 their, in, in their political wrangling amongst the, the Jewish hierarchy of religious politics. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognized that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. So the... Again, they're trying to to narrow Jesus into a corner. They're trying to say to him, okay, let's make him pick one of the commandments. Let's see which one he goes to, because whichever one he goes to, we'll argue against it, because there's so many others. We can can bury this guy. So so they say to Jesus, okay, which is the greatest? Go ahead, tell tell us the greatest. Jesus doesn't hesitate. He doesn't say, well, let me think about it. He says, look, the greatest commandment is, and then he combines two. But he, in his description, he includes all of them. It, it's so incredibly, you know, that comment from the, the chat board was saying Jesus doesn't have that fault of being greedy and so forth. He had such incredible wisdom and understanding. And his answer was, look, and he quotes the Old Testament. You shall love the Lord your God with everything, heart, mind, soul, and strength. You need to do that first and foremost, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the commandments are, com- are included in those. Jesus was all about loving everyone, but always in what context? Of loving God first, Rick. Always, without exception, loving God first. Now, at, look, as we look at the world, uh, what we see is the complete disassembly of these two factors, the disassembly of loving God first and then loving the world, okay? You're right, yes. Some religions love their God and hate the people who don't agree, you know, and we have some some radical forms of those things where they go out and seek to kill them. And then some people, while denying God, 
proclaim to love the people, although they truly have disdain for those people who don't agree with them. <laughs> the, pro- <laughs> the problem always rises where there's the disagreement. And we try to institute things like this political correctness in, in, in the 21st century and to, to make everybody comply. But you're, 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 you're hating on people, whether you like to admit it or not. And Jesus never did that. He talked about loving your enemies. He, he lived his life in sacrifice for his enemies. I mean, it was such an incredibly important uh, example that he set for us. Let, let's, go back, let's go back to that ex-KGB agent um, one more time. Uh, because, you know, he talked in, in, the, in the first soundbite about what happens to what they would call in Russia in the 70s useful idiots, those who were promoting the Marxist theories and how they would go and, and, and destroy them. They would execute them because they were only going to get in the way later. Now let's go a little bit further and see where their, their philosophy would bring them next. The influence of Marxist-Leninist ideas in the United States is absolutely fantastic. I, I could never believe it 14 years ago when I landed uh, in this part of the world that the process will go that fast. Uh, the next stage, of course, is crisis. It, it, it may take only up to six weeks to, to bring a country to the verge of crisis. You can see it in, in Central America now. And after crisis, with a violent change of, of power, structure, and economy, you have so-called the period of normalization. It may last indefinitely. Normalization is a cynical expression borrowed from Soviet propaganda. When the Soviet tanks moved into Czechoslovakia in 68, Comrade Brezhnev said, now the situation in brotherly Czechoslovakia is normalized. This is what will happen in the United States if you allow all these schmucks to bring the country to crisis, to promise people all kinds of goodies and the paradise on earth, uh, to, to destabilize your uh, economy, to eliminate the principle of free market competition, and to put a big brother government in Washington, D.C., with uh, benevolent dictators like Walter Mondale, who will promise lots of things, never mind. Whether... So he does mention one particular politician, but his point is really simple. His point is that you bring in the, quote, benevolent dictator when the normalization takes place. And when they talk about normalization, it's anything but normal. It is now, you know, you've, you, in, in his case with the Russian KGB, it was communism has literally rolled in to take over and, quote, normalize. And what we're, the reason we bring these things up is because we as people, society makes themselves vulnerable when we don't think through things from a standpoint of maturity and logic. Political correctness is not logical, nor is it mature. It's based on feelings. It's based on the protection, the little protective bubble that, that we build for ourselves uh, and because we don't want to feel any kind of offensive feelings, and we don't think that we should have them. In one sentence, in one sentence, Jesus clearly describes his political views. This is our theme text, Jonathan. Let's just go to it just before this break. John eighteen thirty six. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So he makes it pretty simple, pretty straightforward. He does. His kingdom doesn't belong within the context of the kingdoms of this world. 
his kingdom, what he's saying, is a replacement for the kingdoms of this world. And if you're replacing something, you're not trying to fix the old broken thing. You're going to be taking it away and moving into its place something of far greater, far stronger, far more lasting value. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick. Tonight's episode is, Was Jesus Politically Correct? Coming up, how do we frame the expression of our Christianity in this politically correct environment? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Tonight's episode is, Was Jesus Politically Correct? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 10 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by calling 866-985-4255. That's 866-985-4ALL. Or you can message us on your app. Out from the dark ages, errors from the past, and into the light of today, the original good news. Join us 24-7 at ChristianQuestions.com. You know, Jonathan, something you just said there really strikes me, uh, not just about the dark ages, but you, you, you always say it, the original good news. That's the point. That's the way to deal with the political correct mess. Go back to the original good news in its original form and apply its principles in your personal life. We can't change the world around us, nor should we try, but we should be a witness to the individuals around us of a higher, better way of doing things. So uh, let, let's get this segment started in terms of, okay, what do I do as a Christian with a, a quote? I don't have a source for this quote, but what is it? Political correctness doesn't change us. It shuts us up. That's the danger. When we come across so strongly with you must be or you must do or we cannot tolerate this, there is no possibility for conversation, no possibility for dialogue. And where there's no possibility for dialogue, nothing is going to work. You're just going to create angst. Let's go to um, – well, before before we go to another article, just we got to remember that we can easily fall into creating a politically correct Christian environment. Ooh. Well, you know, we've been railing about all of these things. We could bring those same principles into our own Christianity and say— We well, need to be careful. We do. We do. And that's why going back to the—how how, how did you put the original good news? Is that what you said? Yes, yes. Going back to the original good news is so important because traditions tend to twist things. The original good news is the good news in its purest form. Let's go to, yes, another article, Jonathan, sorry. This is uh, investigative reporter uh, A. Gokowski, September 26, 2016. The publication was a, a publication called Campus Reform. An RA at the University of Kansas was advised against incorporating an image of a gorilla into a jungle-themed floor decoration because the animal apparently represents a very masculine image. Assistant Complex Director Dale Morrow also noted that there are stereotypes that surround this animal, and therefore its inclusion in the display would not be inclusive. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, this, this one just makes me laugh. 
<laughs> so they're doing this jungle-themed thing, but you can't include the picture of a gorilla with the other jungle animals because it's too masculine an image. And this is in a college dormitory. Folks, what is wrong with this picture? I know you're going to tell me the gorilla. I get it. But <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. What is wrong with us when it comes down to that? I mean, let's, let, let's be serious. So <laughs> we'll come back to that article uh, a couple more times in this segment. Let's talk about Jesus on religious thinking and religious position in the world Obviously, he talked about the world he lived in, but we can apply his principles in our world. Again, Jesus sets the standard that rises above the fray. And that, to me, is the most important point in this whole thing. Rise above the fray. How does he do that? Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. And you, you made reference to this earlier in the program. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how could it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. All right. So to be the salt of the earth is to be a person of exceptional character, godly character, a person who is a living sermon to Christ likeness to anybody who sees them. That's what it means when he says you are the salt of the earth. Because that kind of character has a preserving effect. It keeps things intact, as, as, as crazy as they might be, because you are stability. You are truth. You are selflessness. Those are the characteristics of being the salt of the earth. None of which, none of which are really held up by all this politically correct nonsense. And that's really, really sad. Let's continue, because Jesus now brings us another picture which is even more forceful in our trying to understand our religious thinking and position in today's world. So let's go again. We're in Matthew 5. Let's now, Jonathan, go to um, uh, verses 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does any light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So he starts out with being the salt of the earth, and now he says you're the light of the world. And, you know, the, the, the idea, let, let's do a, just from, from a little bit of a prophetic standpoint first. Salt of the earth. The earth is, you know, the, the physical world in which we live. You are the character that can, that can be a st stabilizing influence in, in, in the physical world in which we live. And then he says you are the light of the world. The world would indicate not the physicalness of the earth, but the way the earth is being run, sort of governmentally, uh, emotionally, and socially. The world, socially. So you're the light of the social situation. Because it's very dark out there, Rick. <laughs> it is. And when there is a beacon of light in the middle of all that darkness, it gets noticed. And it gets noticed dramatically. And light always, in the midst of darkness, always brings hope. It just always does. It brings hope. So to be the light of the world is to be a source of right and truth in society. Now, again, is it the purpose to, to change society, say, okay, let's overhaul society. Now let's make society Christian. 
No. The purpose is to show them a higher way. Jesus didn't tell us to change this world. He told us to be in it, not of it, but to show them a higher way and attract those who may want to follow Christ with you. So be a source of right and truth. Being a light means not only revealing what is in dark places, but it means being a beacon of hope and direction. Jesus is just plainly, clearly, unequivocally telling us, rise above to be the example, be the light, be the salt. Simple, Jonathan, be different. Be different. So, so before we go to, to back to that, um, another quote from that article about the gorilla, which really cracks me up. Uh, um, you know, let, let's just dwell on this for a second. You know, it, it, from, from your perspective, you're a Christian, you're in the world, you see this stuff. When you look at it personally, you say, oh, what do I do? How, how do you, how does Jonathan cope with the mess of the world around him? Now, I know you like to clean things up, but <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. Well, uh, smile, show kindness. Uh, start up a conversation, um, uh, honor the Lord uh, anytime you can, and give people hope. So, you know, there, there's, there's subtlety in those things that you just said, and there's great power in them. Because what you're, you know, if I, if I can sort of translate what you're saying is you smile, you, you give people hope, you start a conversation. You don't let what's around you bring you down into it. No. You just show them something that's higher and say, hey, you know what? Life is good. Here's why. Because God is good. Or, you know, so, something, I know you, that's the kind of thing you would say. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and that's such great personal, practical, everyday advice. We can be happy and hopeful in a dark world because we know the answer. We know and people can see something different in you with that um, attitude or, or vibe. And so... Then what you're also saying then is that it doesn't necessarily take witnessing to them directly by maybe telling them directly about Jesus, but you're giving them an attitude that gives them a reason to want to be around you more. Yes. And by so doing, you create an environment where somebody at some point may ask you, you know, what, why are you so darn happy all the time? <laughs> and that's happened. Yeah, has it really? Many times. Yes. <laughs> funny. That's funny. And what is it that you believe because you have such peace? <laughs> you know, that's come to me and I'm like, "Really?" <laughs> but see, folks, that's what we're talking about. That's the practical application of applying our our religiousness in a politically correct world. No, we don't have to change it. We just rise above it, and you show people how they can rise above it as well. What a great, great example. Thank, thanks for uh, taking time on that. Sure. Uh, let, let's go back to the gorilla. Now, remember, the context is this is in the University of Kansas. This is September 26, 2016. They're doing this jungle theme in this dormitory, but they don't want to put an image of a gorilla in the jungle because you don't want to have this very masculine image. So let, let's go through a little bit more of the article. Second... This animal could be triggering to some people as there are stereotypes that surround this animal, he continued, noting that all the RA would need to change is the picture and the words. An acquiescence of the R, oh, no, I'm sorry, an acquaintance of the RA, who also wishes to remain anonymous, explained to campus reform 
that the gorilla was used as part of a jungle-themed decoration for a hallway and was not put up as a solitary image. So, and Rick, let me add yeah. a little bit something. Yeah. So what's the matter you? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so the point is it's part of a picture of the jungle. But they're yeah. saying, no, you can't even put that part in because that part, I don't know, maybe it, it, maybe, maybe that jungle doesn't have any gorillas. Maybe we should think of it that way. I mean, come on. It's, you, you see how silly and foolish we get to a point but, we get to. But, can, but can't we put puppies and kittens and bubbles in the jungle? Um, for food. <laughs> Sorry, but that's what would happen. The puppies and the kittens, they would be food. Okay, so I don't think I would put them in the jungle, Jonathan, because no. that would be a trigger for somebody else. I'm telling you. You got it. <laughs> Let, let's just very quickly go back to um, that, that uh, Save the Snowflakes from MRC TV. Again, this is sarcastic, but it proves a very important point about what we're saying about our world. Unfortunately, these efforts are not enough. We need your help to make sure these snowflakes no longer have to live in fear of being offended by facts and logic, opposing points of view, or triggering harmful things like proper pronouns or cultural Halloween costumes. Snowflakes should not have to walk around their college campus and risk hearing something they disagree with or seeing something that doesn't fit within their personal worldview. Every dollar that you donate will go towards helping those who have been victimized by the opinions of others. Proceeds will be used to purchase teddy bears, coloring books, and Play-Doh for campus safe spaces. Cardboard for homemade protest signs and counselors for snowflakes who have been victimized by hearing things that they don't like. <laughs> I don't know, Jonathan. I don't know. You know, the saddest part of that whole thing is that it's based in, in, in the truth of what these, these, uh, these folks were seeing. And what we are seeing in universities, that's the sad part of this whole thing. And what do you do with that? Where do you go for, with that? I mean, how do you cope with that if, in fact, it is something that, that, that we can't change? Uh, it's like, it's like we're, we're at, we're at a, a dead end. Let, let's go back to that, uh, that update, an update for the uh, Kansas University article about the, the, that gorilla that was such a, such a, uh, a problem for everybody. The campus reformed inquiry saying Morrow, an assistant complex director, does not speak for our housing department and noting that it seems reasonable that students would post photos of animals as part of a jungle themed decoration. So they're trying to say, OK, look, we uh, we were trying we we're trying to reason our way through this and it's really not as bad as you think. And, you know, we can manage it. We can we can deal with it and all of that stuff. So. Um, you know that that they're trying to put it back in order because they thought, okay, this is a little bit ridiculous. It's okay to have a gorilla because it's a jungle, and after all, gorillas live in the jungle. Yay! But puppies and kitty cats don't. Okay? They don't. Okay. No. So, our bottom line regarding our role in the world first is to focus on building up the body of Christ. That's such an important thing. Ephesians four eleven to sixteen. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So 
our stand in this world of political correctness and of, of, of foolishness in so many ways needs to be focused on the body of Christ and what it stands for and what we've been given within that body to help us to stand up for the things that are true and right. And again, going back to your, your, your former comment about going to the, again, how did you say it, the original, the original true gospel? or The original good news. The original good news, that's what it was. This, in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, what you just read, is part of the original good news. We were given apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, and they gave us a way to hold on to the most important things in our lives so that we could cope with the mess around us that we're not supposed to change, but we're supposed to stand above. So that's the first point, is to focus on the building up of the body of Christ through the tools given. The second point is to stand firmly upon the foundation of Jesus and not fall from, for the emotional trickery of men. And let's finish up those scriptures in Ephesians. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So, Jonathan, a couple of times in that verse, it talks about grow up. It does, Rick. As Christians, we're supposed to grow up, and by growing up, we can t- make the kinds of adult Christian decisions that can be a great influence on the world around us. Not to try to change the world around us, but to stand above it. Let us be spiritually correct, not politically correct. Yay! <laughs> I like that. Look, that's where we need to focus. That's what we need to be. That's what we need to, to do. We need to be spiritually sound and spiritually mature. And just like we talked before, be the salt of the earth. Be the light of the world. And by doing those two things, we can actually put ourselves in a position to have a great effect. Are we going to change the world around us? No. Can we change the mind of a few by showing them a better way? Yes. What if they don't change their mind? It's okay. Be a witness anyway. Stand above the fray. Don't let the political correctness get you down because what you stand for is ultimately stronger, more powerful, and everlasting because you stand for the kingdom of Christ. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us tonight. We'll have another program for you next week. But till then, Jesus, not politically correct, you follow his footsteps. Till next week, think about it.